This is the reading of the word of God. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. That's the reading of the word of the Lord. Well, we finally reached the final chapter of Hebrews, and it's only taken us four months. Well, that's pretty quick. If, after all, it took the Hebrews 40 years to get across the Sinai Peninsula. But over these four months, we've examined the detailed explanation that its author gave us, telling us that the old covenant given through Moses had been superseded by a new covenant introduced not by a human prophet or priest, but by God's own son. And we've seen that in every way, it's a better covenant. It provides a permanent solution to the broken relationship that exists between us and God because of our sin. In contrast to the necessity of repeated sacrifices under the old law, Christ's death offers justification once and for all for the consequences of all the sin in our lives. And as a result, God's Spirit now lives within each of His children, not in a temple built by human hands. And Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant, intercedes directly on our behalf with the Father instead of the old covenant necessity of of a human, fallible priest. And after providing this compelling explanation of the salvation offered under this new covenant, the epistle then challenges us to put it into practice in our lives. Let's see if I can get this up here. It's always the first step that's the challenge. There we go. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Knowing that it's easy for us to succumb to complacency, it spoke of the importance of endurance and faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Oh, we skipped one. Okay. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. It followed this up with a litany of examples of faithful obedience in the lives of many Old Testament saints. And then concluded this in the beginning of chapter 12 with a call for us to 
let us lay also lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so closely. I don't know whether this is working again. <clears throat> and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Last week's passage encouraged us not to be discouraged when we face struggles and difficulties in our Christian lives, but to view them as discipline that's coming from a loving Heavenly Father who is interested only in our good. And it contrasted the two mountains that are associated with these two covenants, Mount Sinai, where the law was given, and Mount Zion, which is viewed as the dwelling place of God in heaven. The people trembled and shook at the fear and darkness when God's voice shook the earth from Mount Sinai. But one day God will shake the heavens and the earth, and the only thing that will remain is Mount Sinai, the Sion, the city of the living God, the new Jerusalem with all those who have entered into God's kingdom. It concludes that in response to this great gift, we are to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather here and worship you in song and praise and prayer and in sharing your word with one another. God, my words now, may they be your words and let our ears hear the message that you have for us from your word in this letter to the Hebrews. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, immediately following this call to offer God acceptable worship, we find a list of instructions about the way that we are to live our lives as followers of Christ. You know, we usually associate worship with singing and instrumental music and prayer, like we've had here already. And this is certainly worship. That was great worship, wasn't it? But worship involves much more than that, as Paul said in his epistle to the Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Micah provided some practical insight into what God considered worship in this passage from the Old Testament. What shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And He answers, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? 
This isn't the first mention in Hebrews of how our behavior is connected with our approach to God. Chapter 12 also had some quite specific instructions relating to approaching God, the judge of all, and Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, where it says we are to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Clearly, offering God acceptable worship with reverence and awe is not something to be taken lightly, but it's something that is intimately connected with our everyday manner of life. We're not to lead our own self-centered life six days a week and then spend an hour or so in church singing a few hymns or choruses, listening to a sermon, and then imagine that we've done our duty and we've given God the worship He needs during that week. God doesn't need our worship, but He wants our worship. He wants us to live in praise of Him. Nor are we to spend a few minutes at the start or end of each day reading a devotional or scripture passage and praying a little bit. And then taking no thought of what he wants us to be doing with our lives the rest of that day. The seven verses that we're considering today in chapter 13 touch on what acceptable worship might look like as it applies to different areas of our lives. And these instructions are clearly rooted in the two great commandments that Jesus gave us, to love God and to love our neighbor. The first four verses deal primarily with our relationships with others. And the second second three verses, verses 5 through 7, deal more with attitudes and lifestyles that impact our relationship with God. In his letter to the Romans, Paul said that while we were still weak, at the right time, God died for the ungodly. And that right time included a combination of the height of the Roman Empire, when an extensive system of roads and shipping provided convenient travel throughout the Roman world, and after Alexander's conquests four centuries earlier, had provided a common language, Koine Greek, which was the commercial language of the day. A benefit of this particular language was the variety of the words that it has that express different aspects of the concept of love that's so important to the message of the New Testament. There are a number of Greek words in the New Testament that translate, we translate with our word love. The most basic are agape and phileo. There wasn't significant difference secularly in what was meant by those two words. But they were used somewhat, and although they were used somewhat interchangeably in the New Testament, agape is, is generally seen as involving a more sacrificial form of love. It's by far the most common expression for love in the Greek scriptures. Let's have a little Greek lesson here. Phileo forms the basis for a whole other family of words. You can see that if you go to a, a Greek dictionary, you can see a long list of these things that start off with phil, phileo, phila, philo. 
Philadelphia is associated with a love related to kinship or friendship. It literally means love of brother, Adelphos. We'll also come across a couple of other phileo-based words in this passage. Philoxenia and aphilargeros. The Greek word eros doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament. That's the one about sexual desire. You'll probably be familiar with a couple of other Greek words related to phileo. Philanthropy, love of man or mankind. Philosophy, all you students know that. Love of the wise or wisdom. While the underlying Greek words are not so obvious when we read an English passage, uh, translators try to do their best to get the concept across. As we can see by looking at an example in Romans that's similar to Hebrews 13 and the first verse. Romans 12, 9 and 10 reads, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Simple enough? Well, the first let love is actually a translation of agape. The final sentence, which also has love in it, includes yet another phileo-based word, philostogos, used only in this passage in Scripture, referring to the more affectionate kind of love that's found within an immediate family, along with another word that we've already mentioned, philadelphia. So you can see in that sentence, love one another with brotherly affection, how the translators have simplified it a little bit. Instead of just translating it, love one another affectionately with brotherly love, they kind of combined that a little bit. Translating scripture is not something to be taken particularly lightly. But it's, it's helpful to the way the translators get the nuance of, of the Greek words, especially these words about love, through to us. So in the first verse that we're looking at today, let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love is what you think it is. It's what I just mentioned. Adelphia. A love involving some form of friendship or kinship. In this context, it would refer to the way we treat others within the body of Christ, the family of God. Let brotherly love is such a simple command, so simple that we can take it for granted. And that can be a problem with all relationships. When we take them for granted, we may then neglect to give them the attention they need in order to flourish. Uh, We may think... They know me well enough to know how I feel about that. I don't need to explain myself any further. Or I'm just just too busy to take time for that right now. They'll understand. Or maybe relationships even come to, we've just gone down such different paths. I don't see how we can have a meaningful relationship, any meaningful relationship anymore at all. But what would a family be like if we didn't share our feelings and thoughts with one another, didn't take time for one another, or didn't care about how our siblings were doing at all. Let brotherly love continue implies some action on our part to make sure that that doesn't happen and that our relationships are fed and nurtured. 
I got to get this cord pulled out a little bit. It keeps on pulling off my ear. There. Now, living with my charming wife, Phyllis, I'm very aware that if a plant doesn't receive proper care and watering, it will wither and die. I kid her about this whenever we're away on a trip. So I say, hmm, it wouldn't be the worst thing if we happened to lose a few plants while we were away on vacation. But actually, the problem isn't losing plants at all, but having to multiply. Because Phyllis is always taking cuttings as they grow larger and larger, and of course, she grows those in another pot. I suppose there's a positive lesson in that. But why is the need to nurture relationships such an important issue for the church? It goes back to that verse that I mentioned earlier. Let us consider how to stir up love and good works, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. We're surrounded by a world that marches to the beat of a different drummer. And we need to regularly encourage one another to be true to our calling as disciples of Christ so we don't drift off track and become ineffectual in our service for God's kingdom. We do this by spending time with each other, praying and studying God's word together and seeing how it applies in our lives, sharing our joys and sorrows so that we're there to encourage and rejoice with one another when it's appropriate. That's why we stress the importance of participating in small groups here at CBC. Attending a large service like this on a Sunday morning is no substitute for the more intimate fellowship that we can share in a small group. So if you're not involved in one, please don't wait any longer to do something about it. If you need help finding one or even starting one, see one of us as the elders and we will help you do something about it. It's really important to our individual growth and also our mission as the church. The next two verses in today's passage deal with hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are the body. Hospitality to strangers is the English translation of one of those other phileo words I already mentioned, the Greek word philoxenia. Literally, the love of strangers. This relates to showing love to people outside the normal circle of our friends and acquaintances. Being hospitable was an important expectation in Old and New Testament times. Israel was told that they should do this because their own experience was involved in this. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. If you know what it's like to be in need, you will be much more likely to help someone else in need when you see it. There were no chains of Marriott's or Comfort Inn's or Best Western Hotels that you could depend on finding wherever you were traveling in those days. There were no phones to call ahead and make arrangements at stops along the way. There were some hostile-type accommodations along the main Roman roads, 
but they might not be the safest of places. Offering shelter and food to a stranger could truly have been a godsend for them. And Jesus mentions examples of this in his parables. The parable of the Good Samaritan uh, is one in which he tells the lawyer who is asking questions about who is my neighbor in response to the two great commandments. He shows him that a neighbor is not just someone we're comfortable being around. And that's not just the type of person we help. But we also help even those people who may have despised us or we may have despised. Both this parable and the one about the man who sought help from a neighbor at midnight who came unexpectedly are examples of the need for us to step outside of our comfort zone to help others outside our normal circle of friends. The incidents of feeding the multitudes are further examples of the hospitality that Jesus accepted, expected from his disciples, even after long, tiring days. And he expanded this thought even further with his message recorded in Matthew 25. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty. And you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So beyond welcoming strangers, he adds care for those who are hungry, thirsty, naked, sick and imprisoned. Hospitality can mean so much more than simply having friends over for dinner. It would be natural to think that much of this care is shown towards local brothers and sisters in Christ, but it obviously wasn't to stop there. It might mean helping those traveling in need of a stop along the way. In, in the scriptures, it also included the generous gifts that were extended toward whole churches that were in need because of fan and persecution. Many of the people that this epistle was directed to had probably already experienced mistreatment and even imprisonment because of their faith. They knew from experience what it was like. If you were better off, imprisonment might just mean being placed under house arrest, like Paul was for many years, with friends or relatives providing for your needs while you were there because the state... Prisons themselves were foul dungeons that were normally used for those who were just being temporarily held before they were being executed. It was a much more brutal world than we're used to today, at least in the West. But there are many places in this world where Christians are still subjected to imprisonment and brutal mistreatment for their faith. And we can, at the very least, pray for them and provide help through whatever agencies that are able to do something for these people or, or work for the release. Pregnancy centers, adoption, foster care, food pantries, luncheon programs, prison and nursing home ministries are all modern-day applications of this hospitality, this love to strangers. This kind of gracious, outgoing love to strangers was a demonstration of God's love that sharply contrasted with the expectations of the day, 
Early Christians became known for their unconditional love and the care they extended to others in need, particularly to abandoned children, infants, victims of the plague, whom others wouldn't care to have anything to do with. Their lifestyle spoke volumes to the truth of the gospel message to which they bore witness. And our lifestyles should do the same today. Verse 2 also mentions the possibility of some surprise blessings that might be received while doing this. Not that we should be looking for personal benefits other than just the joy of serving others. The specific reference is to Abraham and Sarah receiving three guests in Genesis 18 who they came to realize were angels. In fact, one of them was apparently a manifestation of God in human form, what we call a theophany. And that becomes apparent later when this individual is actually referred to as Yahweh when he's having a conversation with Abraham over God's judgment on Sodom. The passage I quoted earlier from 25, Matthew 25, offers a similar thought later on regarding the acts of kindness that have been listed here. When Jesus adds that when you did it, those things, to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Clearly, we would do well to see those in need around us more as opportunities to serve Christ and show his love rather than as annoying burdens that take up our time. Our passage now turns to the most intimate of human relationships, marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. As with our relationships with friends and neighbors, as well as strangers in need, our relationship with our spouse should be above reproach, held in honor by all, husband and wife. Divorce was taken lightly, not only among the Romans, but even among the Jews at the time. And Jesus made clear that that wasn't to be the case. Infidelity of any kind wasn't acceptable. Marital infidelity was often used in the Old Testament as an illustration of the unfaithfulness of the people to God. And if that's the case, then our marital relationships ought to be a demonstration of our faithfulness to our God. In fact, in discussing faithfulness, Jesus said, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. If we can't be faithful in the most significant commitments we make in our human lives, then how likely are we to be faithful in our spiritual ones? Every aspect of our lives should be seen as providing acceptable worship to the one we call Lord, including our marriages. This isn't to say that the judgment rendered in verse 4 for failure in these relationships is unforgivable. God forgave the woman found in adultery, but he commanded her to sin no more. God alone offers the only complete answer to our need for companionship. Any relationship that doesn't include him will ultimately lead to disappointment. The text now moves on to the question of what's really important to us. What takes priority in our thinking? Keep your life free of the love of money and be content with what you have. 
For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. It approaches this subject by challenging us to be free of the love of money. And yes, there's another one of those phileo-based words. This time it's the Greek word, aphelargeros. And it's got an A or an alpha in front of it because it's the negative. Philargeros would be the love of money. It's actually the love of silver or silver money. Clearly, this isn't speaking just about money. But the whole issue of the control that our possessions can have over us, as indicated by the phrase that follows, be content with what you have. Jesus put it another way. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up treasures for yourself in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If we really trust God, that he will never leave us or forsake us, and if we can say with the psalmist, as in the following verse, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear then our possessions will begin to lose their grip on us. We'll be more focused on what God wants us to do, trusting that he will provide what we need along the way, and not in trying to figure out how we can do life the way we think will turn out best for us. God wants us to see him as our ultimate insurance policy, not all the arrangements that the world can provide to tend for unforeseen needs that might arise in the future. It's not foolish to take some measures to provide for those circumstances, but if anxiety over such matters seriously interferes with us leading a God-centered life, then that's evidence that we really don't trust God's promise to be there for us. Of course, God being there for us may come in the form of fellow believers providing guidance and help. In contrast to this admonition about what not to do as a believer, keeping your lives free of the love of money, the final verse in this section speaks of a positive step that you can take to grow in your walk with the Lord. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. There's clearly an awkward element about speaking on this passage since it talks about considering the lives of those who speak the word of God to you. I'm sure any of us who regularly bring the message on Sunday morning or lead a small group or any other kind of ministry in church will feel a bit uncomfortable talking about this verse. Would we want others to be imitating the way we live our lives? Would we want them seeing what we do the rest of the week when we're not involved in church activities? Would we want them seeing how we treat our families? Would we want them to see how we treat those who we work with or interact with in incidental ways as we go about our business? None of us are perfect. But the point being made here is that those in leadership should serve as examples to follow of what the life of one who claims to be a disciple of Christ should be like. That's a serious responsibility and should give, a, give anyone in leadership pause to reflect on their lives. And actually, that's exactly what the passage says others should be doing. They should consider the outcome of their way of life 
and imitate their faith. It's not saying, okay, you're the leaders, so I'm going to do anything you do. It's saying we should take a more long-term view of this. It's more like, look at the way they live, the way they demonstrate their faith in God's guidance, and consider what the end result of it is. If the outcome is good, and it contributes in a positive way to God's kingdom, then that's probably something worth following. It's not saying that we should imitate just any old church leader about the way they do and the lives they live. In fact, many interpret this passage as referring to leaders who are no longer alive because then you can really see what the outcome of their life has been and imitate their faith if it's worthy. Unfortunately, there are those in authority in churches who have made serious mistakes and have not only ruined their own life, but the lives of many others over whom they had influence. And as a consequence, it brought shame on their message. As one of your leaders, I'd ask that you would forgive us for any shortcomings or failures you feel we may have committed in serving you. I'd ask that you'd Pray for us so that we would be willing to accept correction where needed. That we would be kept from any actions or activities that would bring shame on the name of Christ. And that we would be able to lead the kinds of lives that would be positive examples for others to imitate. But before concluding this passage, it should be said that this is something for all of us to take to heart. We are all God's witnesses, not only to the world around us, but also to others within our fellowship. The way we live and conduct ourselves, the activities that we participate in, the way we treat each other, affects the overall life of this church. And that, in turn, affects the way the watching world thinks and feels about the truth of the gospel that we claim to believe the Lord we claim to follow. That's exactly what Jesus was praying for his church in his prayer before he was about to give his life for us. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but for all those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. When the world looks at me, when it looks at you, when it looks at our church, does it see something about the way we live that would help convince it that God sent his son into the world to be its savior. That would truly be evidence that we are offering acceptable worship to our Lord and Savior. We just stand for the benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good 
that you may do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.